Would you remain standing and pray with me, please? Father, we do ask that your words would come and change our hearts. God, as we delve into Ephesians again, Lord Christ, we ask you to open the scriptures to us this morning through the preaching of your word. Lord, I ask that uh, as your preacher this morning, may I decrease, Jesus, may you increase. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you brought your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to open them up to Ephesians 3, the passage that uh, Katie read this morning. Ephesians 3, uh, beginning with verse 14, that can be found on page 977 of your pew Bible. And so as many of you know, we're in a series this summer, a summer series through the book of Ephesians. And so we're at the halfway point today, Well, beginning with verse 14. We're going to finish up uh, chapter 3, and uh, we're going to conclude this section. Say, conclude this section, what do you mean? we got three more to go. Well, you may remember when I introduced this book, I said that Ephesians is divided up between essentially two parts. You've got chapters 1 through 3, which essentially talk about the activity of God. And then you have chapters four through or five or four, five, and six that talk about what we do in light of what God has done. So God first, action second. We're going to finish the God portion of you will, if you will, today. And so while you're opening your Bibles there and, and looking at uh, for verse three fourteen, um, you know. I, Today's kind of a special day. It's, uh, we're baptizing my son here today, and I'm really excited about that. And I told folks earlier, I'm going to have a good time if nobody else does. I'm really, really excited about this. Um, but anyway, I, in talking about kids or, or thinking about today, I, I wanted to begin our passage or to introduce it with this question. And it's this. Have, have you ever noticed the language that adults use when we talk to children or babies? I mean, think about it. Long before they can respond Long before they can understand us, we talk to our kids, or you talk to somebody else's kids, and we use the baby voice, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know, like, do you have poopy? You know, <laughs> do, do you need a bath? Do, do you, ooh, you stinky. Woo, wait, you know, you need a diaper. You know, you're such a sweet girl. You're such a sweet boy. Yes, you are. You know, it's kinda, it kind of goes like that. And, you know, they don't have a clue what's going on. I mean, most of the time, they just kind of sit there. They're staring off in space, just kind of like this, drooling. But we don't stop talking to them, do we? We don't stop talking to them. But then as time goes on, we as parents and family, we're thrilled when they begin to recognize us. I was told the other week that when I began to read the gospel, my son's head perked up, and he's looking around. Where's daddy? And so as a dad, I'm thrilled when he starts to recognize things like that. And his parents were thrilled when they began to recognize us, when they begin to pick up on what we're saying. And then oftentimes, as they grow older, they begin to mimic back the actions that we make. And so as parents, we continue on talking to them. We hope, hope they will begin to really understand us, that they will really begin to comprehend and talk and process and build a working vocabulary. I mean, just the other night at our supper table, I was having a conversation with my five-year-old daughter, Kira. And um, I, I, made, I, said the, or I used the word dissected in the conversation, only to be rebuked um, with hopeless aggravation of my daughter, who said, Daddy, I don't even know what that means. So I stopped whatever we were talking about and explained to her what the verb dissect means. And friends, all that to make a point, listen, there's nothing really absurd in talking to infants or young children. 
even though they may not understand everything that's being said to him, that's what we do as parents to grow them up, to mature them, to grow them into fully functioning human beings in the world. And friends, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has been doing from chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Listen, regardless of where you are in your Christian journey this morning, like a loving parent who hopes their child will grow in their understanding, who will grow in their vocabulary, and grow into spiritual maturity, Paul hopes that the recipients of his letters, or his letter, in Ephes- or his letter of Ephesians, will grow their understanding and grow their understanding of the realities that he has declared to us in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's hoping that they will gain a working vocabulary of their Christian faith. And he's hoping that they will grow and mature and live more like Christ in the world. You say, okay, well, how do you know that? Uh, pick up with me in verse, uh, again in verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14. Paul says, for this reason, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And get this, this last phrase here. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, in verses 14 through 19, Paul prays for his readers to one, be strengthened with power. Two, he asks that, or he prays that Christ may dwell richly in them. And three, that they comprehend the love of Christ. And then he finishes up That this has the purpose that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word fullness there meaning completedness. It means perfection. That word fullness means maturity. And then you tie that together with the phrase filled with the fullness of God means us. That is you and I being filled with all his perfection. All of God's perfection. All of God's presence. All of God's life. And all of God's power. If you were to say this morning, well, I don't know where to to look. I mean, how do I know how to define? Where would I go to look or to discern this fullness of God in my life? What does that even mean? Where would I look? Beloved, it's Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. To recap a bit about where we've been as we conclude this, this section, listen, Beloved, you may have been here for, the, or for several of these sermons. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14, we saw the Apostle Paul begin with prayer and praise of God. And simply just stating what is true of God and what is true of Christians. And it's in that passage that he gives believers their identity in Christ. He told us, just to remind you, that you are blessed if you are in Christ. He says that you are chosen, that you are in Christ. That you are predestined. That you have have bestowed upon you the blessing of God. That in Christ he has lavished his love upon you. That he's making known to you his will. And that he's uniting all things in the world. Including you and including I to himself. And so in that first chapter, the first half of chapter 1, we saw Paul simply just stating what is true about God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is true of us who know Christ. Then a little farther, the next half of chapter 1, we saw St. Paul interceding on behalf of God's people. 
You may recall, he asked God to give his followers certain gifts. Gifts of wisdom and revelation from God. He asked that God would give them hearts enlightened to understand the scriptures. He asked God to, to make them aware of the hope of knowing that one world, the whole day will be, or the whole world will be recreated and new. All the work of Christ Jesus himself. Paul prayed, asking for them to have the gift of knowing that their inheritance as the people of God is secure in Jesus. And then he also prayed that they would know that the same Holy Spirit power that resurrected Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and very alive, very well working, and very much operating at full power in you and in me. In chapter 2, we learn statements of facts about ourselves and what it means to be a Christian. We learned in that chapter who we were before Christ. Who were we before Christ? That we were dead in sin. And then a little further in chapter 2, we learned who we are in Christ. That God has made us alive now in Christ Jesus. We were dead, now we're alive. And then Paul showed us what we were to now do in Christ. That is doing good works of Christ because God is a God who works and and redeems and we're to go out into the world and be just like him. Then in chapter 2, 11 to 22, we looked at the corporate body of Christ. That is the church. We learned what the church is not. That the church is not about a social club. It's not a social identity. It's not a cultural identity thing. It's not about where you are nationally. It's not a political thing. It's not an ethnic thing. Your identity is simply not none of the, or none of those things in the church. The church is not any of those things. But we did also learn what the, what the church is, and that's that God, church is God's activity in Christ through the Spirit and the life of his people. That Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all being the activity of God, reconciles us to God, makes peace with God by atoning for our sin, brings us near to God, and because we have peace and reconciliation, or reconciliation with God on the vertical level, we also have peace and reconciliation with one another on the horizontal level. We also learn what the church is to be and become, that each of us are part of the household of God. Just like if you picture one big family, I think the majority of my family's here this morning. <laughs> on, the, on the front rows, we're each part of the household of God. And just like one big family, each one of us is a member of that particular family. We also learn that we are all part of a holy temple set apart for the worship of God. Just as this building's built with these great big beams going up and bricks and everything, each one of us is part of the temple of God that's being built on this world. We also learn, too, that each one of us which is just incredible, blows my mind. I still don't understand this, or all the implications of it. Each one of us here is the dwelling place of God. And then last week, if you were here from chapters 3, 1 to 13, we discovered why the church exists. That the church exists simply to do this, it makes God's manifold wisdom known to the earth. And it does this in two ways. The church makes God's wisdom known through the proclamation of the gospel and by by confronting rulers and authorities in the world. You may remember last week we talked about this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that when it's proclaimed, the death, burial, and resurrection, the good news of Jesus Christ, that something new has occurred in the world, something different has happened. The gospel of Jesus has a, a creative power about it, a generative power about it, whereby people who hear that message receive the message of Christ, become new creations. That's what Paul tells us. And then they become a community, a new community of new creations, exactly like we have here today gathered, the church. That reveals God's wisdom on earth because nothing else in the world can truly unify unseemingly separated humanity. The gospel is the only thing that can bring people together. Well, we also saw quickly, the church exists to make God's multifaceted wisdom known on earth by confronting rulers and authorities. We talked about that, that the church, in a sense, confronts the world simply not going out in aggression, but by what we simply are and what we simply do. What do you mean? By, our, by the church's very nature, the church reflects God to the world. And it therefore demonstrates to the rulers and authorities of the cosmos that there is a different way of being human. That there's a different way in following Jesus Christ to be in this world. And you know that the, we realized last week that the world's going to notice that. They're going to feel that sometimes. And no matter what you do, they're going to feel confronted by it. Because how Christians live and how the church functions in the world, it's different than any other thing in the universe. Friends, if you want to know what the fullness of God is... It's, or where it can be found. It's in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 that I just recapped. And friends, Paul begins Ephesians, began Ephesians 1 with prayer. And then after announcing all this awesome stuff from chapters 1 to halfway through chapter 3 about what is true of God, who we are in Christ, where we have come from and where we're going, how the church comes about and why the church exists, we get to the end of this. We get to the end of this long, cha- or long stretch of chapters 1 through 3. And what's Paul's response to all of it? Verse 3, 14. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He bows his knees and on bended knee asks the Lord for the readers of his letter to be strengthened with power. That Christ may dwell richly in them that they may comprehend the love of Christ and that they may be filled with all the goodness and fullness of God. All the things from chapters 1 through 3 we just listed. Essentially, his last prayer, it's a tall order on behalf of the Apostle Paul. Essentially, what Paul is saying at these final words here in chapter 3 is this. I'm praying for you. He says that I'm praying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will strengthen you. That he will dwell in you. And get this, that he will grow you up in the love of Christ. And grow you up into all the things he's been writing about so far in Ephesians. The things that are true of God, true of Christ, true of the church, and true of you. You wanted a summary statement to maybe put a bow to tie up these chapters on prayer and what Paul is saying. He says, I'm praying for you to become now what God already says you are in chapters 1 
through 3. Praying for you to become now what God already says you are in chapters 1 through 3. Okay, you may be here this morning and say, that's all great and good. I hear you. How do we do this? How do I as a believer do this? How do we become what God already says we are in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3? Where does St. Paul start? First, St. Paul starts Ephesians with prayer. And then he ends Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 with prayer. Prayer serves as the bookends for chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. N.T. Wright, or Bishop N.T. Wright says this, he says, The best Christian life and the best Christian doctrine emerges from a life of prayer. You say, okay, so I'm to pray. What am I to pray for? The same thing Paul prays for in verses 16 to 19. Friends, pray that God will strengthen you with his power. That God will strengthen you with his power. Secondly, that God, or that you're asking God that, or for Christ to fill and dwell richly within you. And thirdly, pray asking God to help us to know his love, how immense it is, and then go out in love like he loves. Say, okay. <laughs> I hear you, preacher. That's a bit too churchy for me. Well, let me ask you another question then. That's you this morning. Who are you? What's your identity this morning? What or who defines who you are? What in the world is influencing you? Is it God? Or is it something else? Is it friends? Is it family? Or peers? I mean, really, who gets to tell us who we really are in this world? Children of God, the reason there is so much confusion in many of our lives is that either we don't know who we are in Christ, or we're not listening, because either we think we know better, we're listening to others, we wrongfully fear God, or we're listening to competing voices. I mean, the list could just go on and on. And so I just want to ask you a question this morning, if you say that to you this morning. Can I ask you something? Will you let your Heavenly Father tell you in His language from Ephesians 1 to 3 who you are? You say, well, I, I hear you, but it just sounds like to me when I sit down and read the Bible, it's a bunch of churchy language that's irrelevant, and I don't get it. Beloved, yes, the native tongue of our Father in heaven is a bit strange. But I can tell you something this morning. You will not grow up in your faith if you don't learn it. You'll remain an adolescent Christian at best. Listen, without God telling you, without God telling me, without God telling us who we are, okay, at best, we're left with only comparing ourselves to others and using God like a glorified life coach or guidance counselor instead of him being our Lord and Heavenly Father. See, just as we learn who we are in this world through our parents and we learn the language of our parents very early in life, we must, as Eugene Peterson states, be willing to learn who we are in this world and learn the God-revealing vocabulary and prayer-saturated syntax and images given to us by our Heavenly Father from Ephesians 1 to 3. 
That's what we must do if we want to grow up, if we want to mature in our faith and grow into the fullness of God. There are no substitutes. All analogies and all words fail and break down. So friends, like a loving parent, our Heavenly Father has been speaking to us, speaking to us at a very early age in our Christian walk. He tells us how much He loves us. He tells us who we are in Christ. He tells us in the most intimate of words what all, are, what all is ours in Jesus. He tells us what we're to become, all from Ephesians 1 to 3. And so before we change over into verses four, or excuse me, chapters uh, 4 to 6, the question is, are we listening? May we today become now what God already says we are in Ephesians 1 to 3. See, beloved, Luke Samuel, my son, <laughs> he's not going to understand all that's about to happen to him in a few minutes, okay? He's not going to understand all that happens to him in this rite of baptism. I will pray over him. We will speak over him. We will pray for him and speak to him the truths about what baptism is and does and means. And though he may not understand it, it does not mean it is nonetheless not true. What we say is true. And then as he grows older, I pray that Dana and I, as well as his godparents, and hopefully all who are in his life, will continue to declare to him what is true about him in Jesus Christ. Prayerfully over time, he will begin to speak the language of his heavenly Father. Prayerfully, he will come to know who he is in Christ. And prayerfully, I pray that he will mimic back the good examples of faith he sees in the world and both live out and own his Christian faith as he follows Jesus Christ himself when he's responsible. Beloved, I close this morning with the final words of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And you'll hear this again in the baptismal rite, which is amazing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.